we will get to a point where Alzheimer's is the same. It's, it will not be a disease that's common. It will not be one that's on our minds. And as I mentioned at the end of the book, fixing cognitive decline will be as common as straightening teeth. You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gervais. Hello, everyone. It's Carol. My guest today is Dr. Dale Bredesen. Dr. Bredesen is internationally recognized as an expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, and he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The End of Alzheimer's. He has held faculty positions at the University of California, San Francisco, UCLA, and the University of California, San Diego, and directed the program on aging at the Burnham Institute before coming to the Buck Institute in 1998 as its founding president and CEO. He is currently a professor at UCLA. And today we're gonna be talking about his brand new book, The End of Alzheimer's Program, The First Protocol to Enhance Cognition and reverse decline at any age. Dr. Bradison, welcome to Food Integrity Now. Thanks so much for having me again, Carol. Oh, I'm just thrilled to have you on the show. You were on the, the show. I did an interview with you, I think it was like two years ago, with your first book, The End of Alzheimer's. And uh, you came out just yesterday with your second book, which is The End of Alzheimer's Program, the first protocol to enhance cognition and reverse decline at any age. Love that title. Thank you so much. And you know, let's just give a little backdrop for this. What's happened in standard of medical care for Alzheimer's in the last several months? Uh, number one, the intranasal insulin trial failed. Number two, aducanumab failed. And actually, they're trying to get the uh, FDA to approve, even though it failed. Uh, and number three, base inhibitors failed. So as you know, we've had over 400 failed clinical trials at a cost of billions of dollars. So something is fundamentally wrong. We reported, as you know, the very first successes in reversal of cognitive decline, and that was back in 2014. And as you mentioned, we then published a book. When I talked to you, uh, this was back in 2017, published uh, The End of Alzheimer's. It's now, it was on the New York Times bestsellers list for five months. It's now in 32 different languages. But wow. everybody said, you know, hey, you haven't given enough details in the first book. How do we do this? Where do we go? What do we buy? What are the websites to use? How do you do troubleshooting? All the details that we did not have room in the first book to put in simply because the first book was about the science. For the first time, we can conceptualize this in a different way and look at, instead of going at this with a single drug, you have to look at Alzheimer's disease the way it actually is, which is that you've got multiple different contributors. So we always tell the patients, Imagine you have a roof with 36 holes. A drug is an excellent patch for one hole, but what about the other 35 holes? And so we, what we did was for the second book, we tried to get all of these details 
that we did not have in the first book. And to do that, I worked with two wonderful co-writers. I worked with uh, I worked with Julie Gregory and with my wife, Dr. Aida Lachine Bredesen, who's an integrative physician. So what we had was we have a scientist, we have a clinician, and we have a daily user who has gone from 35th percentile in her cognitive testing to 98th percentile. And she is, by the way, ApoE44, which is the highest genetic risk, the, the typical ApoE4 gene, which about 7 million Americans have two copies and 75 million Americans have one copy. That's the common Alzheimer's risk gene. Uh, and, and she's doing absolutely great eight years into this, which is unheard of before. So with her daily use and all the, the, you know, all the good details, all the workarounds, all the things that she's encountered, with my wife's use and her being a clinician, and then with the scientific background, how does all this work, which is what we studied in the laboratory for 30 years, this really gives you a unique look at what can I do to prevent or reverse cognitive decline. That's fantastic. Well, let's dive in a little deeper here. So early in the book, you talk about the diseases like polio and leprosy, which we don't hear about much anymore. And for polio, the vaccine pretty much, you know, took care of that. And you talk about a vaccine for Alzheimer's, but you're not talking about an injection. You want to talk about that a little bit? That is a really good point, Carol. It really gets to the background, it really gets to the, to the nexus here. What, what is the critical piece here? Because we have to think about 21st century diseases in a fundamentally different way than we thought about 20th century diseases. So for polio, for leprosy, for these sorts of diseases, for tuberculosis, these were simple diseases in which there was one pathogen, right? One thing that you get, a tubercle bacillus, or you get a polio virus. And so the whole idea was either to eradicate it or to give you a vaccine to prevent it, as the case in polio virus. And of course, what people are working on now uh, for COVID-19 and the associated coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. And so the problem now is that having gotten rid of many of those infectious illnesses, virtually all of us today in the 21st century, unfortunately, are dying from complex chronic illnesses. Now, these are fundamentally different illnesses. They don't give you symptoms immediately. So you can't wait for them to start and say, oh, you know, well, I've now been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Well, the underlying changes in your brain typically begin about 20 years before a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, which is why we want to get people on prevention or early reversal. That's the best way to go. Although, as I mentioned in the book, we have seen some people even in late stages who have turned around, but easier early. But the second thing is, just as we had global pro uh, programs in which we eradicated polio and smallpox and things like that, we need to have a global program for Alzheimer's because dementia is now a trillion dollar global problem, which it's truly a, a pandemic and unfortunately one that's on the rise. But as you indicated, the way to go after this 
is quite different than giving you a single injection because there are many different ways to get Alzheimer's. It has to do with your ongoing inflammation. It has to do with a set of different chronic pathogens, such as herpes simplex 1, HHV6A, P. gingivalis from your dentition, T. denticola, candida, specific molds from your sinuses. These all can contribute. And by the way, they've all been identified in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's. So this is a disease that can come from many different contributors. And typically for one person, we see between 10 and 25 different contributors. So we have to identify those and target those. For, so for a global program, what you want to do is actually to check a set of uh, biochemical and genetic variables, relatively easy to do. This is what we call a cognoscopy. Just that was going to be my next question. Yeah. Say that word again for our listeners. So this is called a cognoscopy. So just okay. as everybody knows, when you turn 50, you should get a colonoscopy. And actually, my wife and I did that. Uh, when we turned 50, we actually uh, decided to do it on Valentine's Day as his and hers colonoscopies just <laughs> to get it over with. We thought, you know, this is not something pleasant we want to do. Let's just get it over with. A cognoscopy is actually a lot easier. It's simply a set of blood tests to indicate these different pathogens and inflammation and insulin resistance and things like this. And then secondly, it's a simple online cognitive screening. How are you doing? Because this thing does and to sneak up on people. And then the third thing is, if you're already having symptoms, you also want to include an MRI with volumetrics to look to see if you have any atrophy in regions of the brain. But if you have no symptoms- Can you say that again uh, for our yes. listeners about the MRI? Absolutely. When you get an MRI, and if it is associated with cognitive decline, what you want to do is make sure to ask for volumetrics. So in other words, they are measuring the size of your hippocampus and the size of your temporal lobe and the size of your parietal lobe. Because if that's shrunk down, if that's begun to shrink, that tells you, please get on treatment immediately because you're already starting to see shrinkage. The good news, we've had people go on the program that we developed and actually re-plump up their hippocampi so they actually can get an increase in the volume of these regions of the brain. It's not something that's irreversible, but you want to get in there as early as you can because, again, the later it is, the harder it is to do that. So, and again, you don't have to have the MRI if you're truly asymptomatic, you're scoring well on the testing, everything's good, don't worry about that part. So that's the combination, that's what a cognoscopy is, and that's the way we are going to essentially have a vaccine, by getting everybody on the right protocol. It's a little different for different people, which is why we actually have an algorithm to do this. We have it in computer code so that you can actually see, okay, here are the things that you have to do to make sure that you have best results. So no surprise, if your main problem is insulin resistance, you want to focus on that. On the other hand, it could be very different. If your main problem is P. gingivalis from your mouth is now entering your brain, okay, you want to get rid of that. And you want to now use dental side and toothpaste and dental side and mouthwash to get I rid use of them it. both. They're you fantastic. Really? Good for you. Uh, those biocidin products, I've interviewed the um, 
uh, Rachel. Uh, yeah. I can't I, I heard your last name. Yeah, but I, I absolutely love those products. Yeah, and they absolutely help people who have oral pathogens. As you know, we've heard so much about the gut microbiome. But it's also important, you know, what is the microbiome orally and also, by the way, in your sinus, uh, sinuses. So these are all critical microbiomes and all can contribute. The bottom line is we know what it takes today to make Alzheimer's a rare disease, which is what it should be. And unfortunately, it's simply not being done. The doctors are not checking the right things. If you go to an Alzheimer's center, they typically aren't checking the most important things. So this is what this book is all about. Here are the critical things to check. Here are the things to do so that we can all work together and make Alzheimer's a rare disease as it should be. Wonderful. Well, you mentioned earlier the uh, APOE gene. Can you share a little bit more about that and some of the risk factors associated with APOE4 and what, what all that means? Absolutely. And so when we spent 30 years in the laboratory studying how does this disease actually work? Why is it that you lose synapses in your brain? Why is it so common? Why do you lose neurons in your brain with Alzheimer's? And what we found is that there's a whole set of factors that play on this. This is uh, literally, if you think about what happens in osteoporosis, there's an analogy here. And so in osteoporosis, as you know, you have a whole set of things that build bone. These are called osteoblastic. And they're things like estrogen and vitamin D and calcium and things like that, and having the right amount of various different nutrients and growth factors. And on the other hand, there's a whole set of things that pull back on this. And so you're constantly remodeling your bone. That's normal. But as we get older, especially as our hormones change, as our nutrients change, as our absorption changes, on and on and on, we go too much on the osteoclastic side, that's the pulling back part, and too little on the osteoblastic side. And therefore, in fact, our bones can get more fragile and we can ultimately get over years osteoporosis. Well, what we discovered in the laboratory is that in fact, Alzheimer's is synaptoporosis. So you have a whole set of things that are synaptoblastic. And this has to do with your growth factors like nerve growth factor and brain-derived neurotrophic factor and things like that. It has to do with hormones. It has to do with inflammation, all these different things. And then there are synaptoclastic. And normally there's a beautiful balance. You know, you're actively remembering critical things and you're actively forgetting things like like the seventh song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday. You don't need to keep those things. And so what happens is there's a genetic component, no surprise, as there are for so many things. So these play on the genetic component. The important thing to know, genetics are not your destiny, they just change your risk. Now, there are over 30 different genes that increase risk for Alzheimer's disease. The most common one is, as you indicated, called ApoE4. And so ApoE itself, which is apolipoprotein E, this is a protein that binds fats. And it turns out to be quite important for Alzheimer's disease. And for most of us, about three quarters of us 
have ApoE3 or ApoE2, and you have two copies, of course. You have one from your mother and one from your father, so you can be a 2-3 or a 3-2, or you can be have a copy of ApoE4. So there are about 75 million Americans who have a single copy of ApoE4, and then there are about 7 million Americans who have two copies of ApoE4, and the vast majority, unfortunately, don't know it. If you have zero copies, which is about three quarters of us, our risk for Alzheimer's during our life is about 9%. It's not zero, but it's not terribly high. On the other hand, if you have a single copy, your risk is about 30% during your life. And if you have two copies, your risk is well over 50%. Most likely you will develop Alzheimer's, but you needn't. That's the key. So we'd like everybody, please find out where you stand get on early prevention because there's a tremendous amount that you can do. And in fact, there's a, a wonderful website that was started by Julie G who worked on the book with me. And this is called apoe4.info and people share information and the vast majority of people on there are on the protocol that we developed. And actually Julie has been on now for over eight years and she's doing absolutely great. And for most people, of course, after eight years of symptoms, um, they may well be in a nursing home. She's done extremely well. And as a simple example, the magnitude of the effect on your risk of a single copy of ApoE4 is about the same as the magnitude of the inhibition of the effect by regular exercise. So in fact, there is a tremendous amount we can all do, and this is why we developed this protocol we call RECODE protocol for reversal of cognitive decline. And the re again, the reality is this should be a rare disease. So we recommend everyone, please find out where you stand. And as you said, ApoE4, critical gene, common gene, but one that does not have to represent our future. Oh, great. Uh, that really helps me understand it more fully. So let's talk about some of the potential contributors to Alzheimer's. You, you, you list quite a few inflammation, insulin resistance. You want to just talk about a few of those so people can understand why it's a risk? Yes. So at the heart of this disease, just as we talked about osteoporosis and we talked about synaptoporosis, is this switch. And so what happens is when things are good in your brain, when you've got enough support, enough growth factors, enough, enough of hormones, nutrients, and on and on and on, enough sleep, by the way, all these things, then your amyloid precursor protein, this is a molecule that sits in your neurons and to a lesser extent in other cells. This thing is triggered to be cut at a single site and to produce two signaling pieces or peptides one for outside the cell, one for inside the cell. And this is literally telling your brain cells, things are good, you have enough support, go ahead and make connections and keep connections. And these allow you to make, store new memories. On the other hand, when things are bad, and there's a whole set of things that we'll go into that, that cause that, then this same molecule, amyloid precursor protein, or APP, is cut at three different sites, and these are called the beta site, the gamma site, and the caspase site, and this now produces four pieces, 
two for outside the cell, two for inside the cell. And these are literally saying, things are bad, pull back. And in that sense, there is a direct analogy between COVID-19 and what happens in your brain with Alzheimer's disease. So what happened with COVID-19? We had an insult, in this case, it was the virus. And so we were all told, wait a minute, shelter in place, pull back, businesses closed, unfortunately. We entered a significant recession, unfortunately. Because we are now downsizing as part of a protective response to a threat, which is this virus. In your brain in Alzheimer's, it is exposed to various viruses, bacteria, spirochetes, uh, fungi, molds, all of these things. Therefore, it is doing the same thing. It is saying, uh-oh, things are not good. I am now going to produce something that actually kills these. And that is what the amyloid we have vilified in Alzheimer's. People say, oh my gosh, we got to get rid of that amyloid. Well, guess what? The amyloid is actually attempting to kill these pathogens. But in so doing, your brain is saying, wait a minute, we have to downsize, we have to pull back. So that is what's going on in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's. Therefore, we must identify what's causing this, get rid of that, and then help build back. No surprise when people don't look for it, they just continue to be exposed to it, they just continue to downsize, 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 until you can't dress yourself, you can't do all the activities of daily living. So what are these threats? What are these things that the brain recognizes? Well, when we started to look into these years ago, what we found is that there are different groups of them. And in fact, this forms the different subtypes of Alzheimer's disease. So what we call type one or inflammatory Alzheimer's is due to anything that chronically activates your, immune, your innate immune system. So that, that's part of the A-beta the A-beta itself is actually part of your innate immune system. So what you are saying is, my brain is recognizing that there's a threat and it's producing something that is going to downsize. This would be like, imagine that you had just police all over the place and they're just shooting bullets everywhere. Yeah, people are gonna get hurt, not just the bad guys. And that's what's happening with the amyloid. And so we wanna determine again what these are. Now, as I said, it can be oral pathogens. It can be herpes simplex from your lip. And there was a wonderful study out of Taiwan showing that people who treated their recurrent herpes simplex on their lip had a much lower likelihood of going on to get Alzheimer's later in life than those who did not treat it. So not such a bad idea. It's easy to do. Similarly, chronic sinusitis, leaky gut. These are, I know that you've interviewed Dr. Tom O'Brien before, who's done so, such nice work on gluten and its relation to leaky gut. And of course, that can give you increased risk for cognitive decline. And it's such a common problem. Um, all sorts of other things, as they say, leaky gums, you know, you know periodontitis and gingivitis. Uh, so things, that's all type one. And then type two is very different. And that is, it's not that you have this onslaught, it's that, in fact, you just don't have the support to keep things going. So this is, again, very much like a country. You can either have people invading you from all over the place, that would be more like type one, or you can just not have what's in the treasury. You can just not have the support to keep the country going. So again, your APP recognizes this at the molecular level. 
and says, wait a minute, we're going to have to downsize. And this has to do with growth factors like nerve growth factor and brain derived neurotrophic factor. It has to do with hormones that are supportive of your brain. This is estradiol, testosterone, pregnenolone, progesterone, DHEA, thyroid hormone, all of these things are critical. And by the way, lots of stress, your cortisol goes up. The cortisol actually causes the downsizing. So stress is associated with shrinkage of the brain, which is why fine to have short periods of stress. You don't want to have chronic stress, as you know. So again, you know, as a scientist, I never thought I would be talking to people about things like meditation and joy you know, and, and walking in the woods, all that stuff, which I poo-pooed years and years ago. You know, I can't argue with the data. You know, in fact, yeah. this is absolutely important for your brain to have its best abilities and to have its best support. And then in addition, to, in addition to the growth factors and the hormones, nutrients. So if you are low in vitamin B12, that's been associated with dementia for many years. That's been known for decades and decades. Uh, if you are low in vitamin D, vitamin D activates hundreds of genes. It actually binds to its receptors, enters the nucleus, alters the expression of hundreds of genes, and some of them are involved with making and keeping synapses. So if you are low in vitamin D, which so many of us are, then in fact that increases your risk for cognitive decline due to Alzheimer's disease. So all of these things are critical. So that's type two or atrophic. And then there's actually a type 1.5. And we say that because you have features of inflammation and you have features of atrophic, of pulling back. And that is glycotoxic. So I wrote a chapter in the first book about, you know, if you wanna give yourself Alzheimer's, here's how you can do it. And one yeah. of the things you wanna do is, you know, eat a bunch of sugar and processed foods. Uh, surprisingly and unfortunately, these contribute to cognitive decline because what happens? Well, you get inflammation because these sugars actually stick to many proteins. And of course, we measure this as hemoglobin A1C, but it, you're really sticking to hundreds of proteins. So it changes both their structure and their function. These are like remoras on a shark. And so in fact, your immune system can recognize, hey, wait, something's changed. And so you now get inflammation. So you have some type one Alzheimer's. On the other hand, you also get insulin resistance because what happens? Your body increases the insulin levels for years. And therefore, you are now changing your signaling. It's just like if you had a son who played really loud drums all the time. So now you put on some earmuffs and then your spouse comes home and puts on a nice Brahms lullaby, you can't even hear it. And that's what happens with insulin resistance. You change the, literally, you change the phosphorylation of a signaling molecule called IRS1, which responds to insulin. And so now it does not respond as well to insulin. So that gives you some type two because insulin is a critical growth factor for brain cells. When we have grown brain cells over the years in the lab, we always have to include insulin in their medium because they require that for survival. So if you are insulin resistant, you're putting yourself at risk for cognitive decline. That's type two. Type three, toxins. So there's a set of toxins that increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And these are in three groups. So group one toxins are metals, 
like mercury. Mercury is a big one, unfortunately. And then other inorganics like air pollution. And so, of course, with the California fires, that is increasing our risk for future cognitive decline. So you want to get that N95 mask. You do not want to be inhaling the particulates from these fires any more than you want to be inhaling a lot of air pollution. That's interesting because I spoke with my mother this morning who is in Santa Rosa and I said, do you have an N95 mask? And she said, yeah. I don't. And I said, well, I'm getting online right now and I'm sending you one because of the smoke. Yeah, and su suggested she get um, an air doctor and at least, at the very least, put that in the room where she sleeps. And yeah, absolutely. It's so important. And people, again, the, 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 the trick here with these chronic illnesses is unlike the, like pneumonia, you know when you have it. Very quickly, you get sick, you go to the doctor, you get penicillin or amoxicillin or cephalosporin or what have you, you get better. With these chronic illnesses, they sneak up on you. You have them for years. So you have to bother to check and you have to know what to do to prevent them. So as you indicated, you want to improve air quality. And so get a HEPA filter. Stick it in your room and make sure that your air quality is good. And I should add one thing that we didn't know about when I published the first book, how incredibly important this was. We did mention sleep apnea, but we didn't know back then, and which has come out, and we mentioned this in the new book, how incredibly common it is for people to reduce their oxygen saturation at night. And that is a critical contributor to cognitive decline. And there was a very interesting study done in which they simply looked at what is your average oxygen saturation at night, which it should be between 96 and 98%. But for many of us, it's going down to 92 or 90 or 88 or 85. In fact, we've seen it as low as 71%, just unbelievably low while people sleep at night and typically not diagnosed. Doctors typically aren't looking for it unless you say, oh my gosh, I'm snoring like crazy. I surely have sleep apnea. Many people don't have that and yet they still drop their oxygenation at night. So what you want to do is get an oximeter, stick it on there. If you look at this, as I mentioned in the study, just the average saturation correlates directly with the brain size of different nuclei in the brain, including ones that are critical for Alzheimer's disease. So as your oxygen goes down at night, your brain size goes down, unfortunately. So please check this out. Similarly, you know, this is one of the reasons why exercise is so helpful. Blood flow itself, another key piece. If you're sitting around on the couch all day and doing nothing, you are not getting the same blood flow to your brain as if you're out there and doing some exercise. It actually does help. And you know, again, you want to get outdoors. Outdoors better than indoors when it comes, unless you know, of course, unless there are ongoing fires. So uh, you know, you got to kind of you have to balance those. So these are all pieces, all critical. And so second group of toxins. Uh, as I mentioned, metals and, and, um, and the inorganics are the first. Second one are organics. So if you're exposed to benzene, toluene, in fact, if you're, for example, if you're doing 24-7 burning of paraffin candles, that turns out to be quite bad for your brain and your lungs. So find out about your status with formaldehyde, with benzene, toluene, 
other organics. And by the way, include glyphosate. This is one, you know, from Roundup. This is another one that is a toxin. And then the third group are the biotoxins. So no surprise, organisms have their own. They don't use guns, but if you've got, you know, if you've got molds around, these things have their own way to fight you for their own survival. So they elaborated toxins. The reason is because they grow more slowly than bacteria, but they live with bacteria. They live in the same niches as the bacteria often. So what they evolved to do to fight the bacteria is to produce toxins. And of course, that's where we got penicillin. They're killing the bacteria so that they can establish a place to live. And unfortunately, some of the toxins they produce actually damage our brains, our immune systems, increase our risk for cancer. And there are, of the many mold species, many of them don't produce something that's a problem for us. But there are five big ones that you want to know about. Those are Stachybotrys, that's the toxic black mold, that's the bad stuff. They're Penicillium, Aspergillus, Ketomium, and Wallenia. Those are the big five. And so you can easily get an ERMI score. This is from the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA. It's called EPA Relative Mold Index. Um, you can get it, for example, you can get from Mycometrics. You can actually check to see either your home or your place of work and see if those big five molds are present there. They'll actually give you a score. There's also something called a Hurts Me Too score. Same idea. It tells you if you've got the bad molds that could be potentially giving you a problem. And by the way, you can also get these mycotoxins measured, uh, for example, in urine. So those are the biotoxins, and they unfortunately often can give cognitive decline. And we, we have many, many people who have had previously undiagnosed mycotoxin exposure and who have ended up with cognitive decline. And until you remove that exposure and then help to excrete those toxins, you're not going to get better. So that's type three Alzheimer's, which by the way, often looks different than the other types people often present younger. This is typically in, it's more common, unfortunately, more common in females than males. As Maria Shriver has said, Alzheimer's as a whole is a woman-centric disease. Almost two to one females to males. Whereas, for example, Parkinson's is more of a male-centric disease, about 1.8 to one males to females. So women in their late 40s to mid 50s commonly are the ones developing type three because it comes on around the time of perimenopause or menopause. It, what happens is your progesterone is declining and progesterone is key for detoxification. So you're no longer able to detoxify the way you were before. And then in addition, as you're exposed to these things over years, you are doing everything possible. You're trying to excrete them. You're trying to metabolize them and inactivate them, but you're also sequestering them. One of the places you sequester them is in your bones. So now as you enter that osteoclastic burst, which happens around the time of menopause, you are re-releasing these toxins that have been sequestered. So therefore increasing your exposure. So again, check those out and make sure you don't have exposure to the biotoxins. This, as I say, it often presents with problems with organizing or problems with recognizing faces 
or problems with calculating. If you're beginning to have these sorts of problems, please get checked out because this can be the beginning of type three Alzheimer's disease. And some people with type three do present with the typical forgetting, can't remember new things, but they often will have these other things as well. And then type four is vascular. So for again, for many of us, we're not getting the support we need. We have some degree of vascular disease. We may have some inflammatory vascular disease. So there's some type one there as well. But for whatever reason, we're not supplying the brain and therefore it is downsizing. It's having that same effect and it is giving us type four Alzheimer's disease. And then type five is traumatic. If you've had traffic accidents and, and if you've had concussions and things like that, you are at increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. And of course, also what's been called CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And the thing that really gives you a hint that you have the traumatic kinds of cognitive decline is that people tend to have a triad. So they tend to have depression and aggression and dementia. So if you see that triad, think about traumatic, think about type five, either CTE or Alzheimer's disease. That's the, the common thing. And you can you know, kind of understand what your brain's response, if you have been beaten, if you have been hit on the head, if you've had accidents, your brain is saying, okay, I'm going to reorganize myself, so I'm going to hit back. It really says you've been in battle, and next time around, you're going to push back. And so you actually have a change. People will have a change in their personalities so that they are more aggressive if they have had significant head trauma. So you can you know, keep a lookout for those symptoms. So those are the things that are contributing to our cognitive decline. And you can see now why Alzheimer's is such a huge problem because so many of us are exposed to the very things that increase our risk, starting with our diets, starting with poor sleep, starting with chronic stress, starting with poor oxygenation at night, all of these things contributing yeah. to our problem. One of the solutions you offer uh, and recommend in the book is the uh, KetoFlex 12-3. Can you share with our listeners what that is? We, most of us have heard of the keto diet and right. um, a way of eating, but this is a little different. Absolutely. So the idea here is we looked at what is it, what is it that could changes your biochemistry so that you are now on the synaptoblastic side instead of the synaptoplastic side. So we want to, when we treat people, we want to do everything possible to reduce the synaptoclastic signals and increase the synaptoblastic signals. We are just changing that balance. It's just like a seesaw. You know, we're going, now we've got, we're on the wrong side of this to begin with. So we now want to put you on the right side of this, which is again, why we say to people, please get in early. This is not a hopeless problem and get doing the right things. Now, how do you do the right things? Well, it starts with bridging an important gap. So for people, when they start to have cognitive decline and PET scans show this beautifully, that in fact, you have a poor ability to metabolize glucose. You have reduced glucose utilization in your temporal and parietal regions of your brain. And that occurs for about 10 years 
before a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So again, if you're having problems, this is already happening. Please get in early and get this changed. Now, what, do you, what can you do to change that? Well, this is an energy emergency. So you want to produce ketones, and ketones are actually helpful to bridge that gap. Now, there are two ways to do it, as you know. You can take ketones, and at the beginning, we recommend people just do that because you need to start immediately to bridge this gap. And you can do this with ketone salts or ketone esters. You can take these a couple times a day. Get your ketone level up between 1.0 and 4.0 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate. Or if you're using a breathalyzer, for example, there's a nice breathalyzer that we just tested recently from Biosense, you want to get, they use a, a scale called ACEs because they're looking at acetone from the breath. You want to get yourself above seven on the ACEs scale. So you want to get yourself into that range because that's what it takes to bridge this energy gap. So the starting again with the diet and it go, you know, people will say, oh, come on, diet is not a cure for Alzheimer's. No, not by itself but it's incredibly important to get your best neurochemistry to put you back in a synaptoblastic state. So what it turns out to be the best diet that actually helps you with this, and in the long run, we wanna get you into endogenous ketosis, making your own ketones. But that takes a few weeks for most people to get there, and that's why we wanna start with some exogenous ketones. So, the Ketoflex 12.3 is a plant-rich, because there are all sorts of critical things that these plants provide, from polyphenols. And by the way, there was a trial, just polyphenols alone reduce risk for cognitive decline. And that's one of many things. So all the various things you're getting, of course, you're getting from crucifers, the ability to detox. So that improves your detoxification status. These are critical. This is a you know, again, a little bit like a, an orchestra. You've got to get the violins playing right. You've got to get the timpani. You've got to get the clarinets. Everything has to play correctly to get best outcomes. And this idea that, you know, we're going to find one drug that does a hundred different things really is, is biologically naive. I think the drugs are going to be incredibly important in the long run when used appropriately on the backbones of the appropriate protocol. But unfortunately, these things are all being tested as monotherapies right now, which really makes no sense. So you want to have a plant-rich. One of the big things about that is you want to have appropriate fiber. Our ancestors were taking in about 100 grams per day of fiber. And what does it do? It, it helps you detox. It's critical for detox. It gives you a better lipid profile, so it improves your cholesterol status. It gives you better glycemic indices, so in fact, you now have better insulin sensitivity. It gives you a better microbiome. It supports your microbiome. So incredibly important. And we want people at least get to 30 grams per day. Um, that's a good target for today. Uh, if you can do better than that, fantastic. But a lot of people are walking around at five or 10 grams per day, which is just not going to help. And so this is a plant-rich, and yeah, if you want to be a vegetarian, you can do that. If you don't want to be a vegetarian, that's fine too. So yeah, have some wild-caught salmon, have some pastured eggs, have some, have some uh, you know, pastured chicken, have some, uh, you know, have some, uh, 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 
beef that's, that is uh, grass-fed, all of these things are fine. Sardines, anchovies. <laughs> yes, the smash fish. Yeah. Know, as you said, you know, you want salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, yeah. and herring. Those yeah. are the good ones. You don't want the high mercury fish. You don't want the, the tuna. You don't want the shark. You don't want the swordfish, things like that yeah. that are high mercury. Yeah. So get yourself into mild ketosis. Um, and then, the, the, so that's keto flex. That's the idea that it's flexitarian and also is giving you metabolic flexibility, which is critical. The ability of your brain to metabolize either carbohydrates or good fats. Those are critical. And then 12-3, that means you want to have at least 12 hours of fasting. Fasting turns out to be incredibly helpful. Now, if you're very thin, be careful. You're going to have to work up to this and you're going to have to cycle uh, once or twice a week because you don't want to make yourself even thinner. But for those of us who are not, who don't have, you know, BMIs down at below or 18 or below, then we can easily do this and have 12 to 16 hours of fasting. If you're ApoE4 negative, 12 to 14 is typically good. If you are ApoE4 positive, you want to shoot for more like 14 to 16 hours. So what that really means is you're going to be eating in an 8 to 12 hour so-called time-restricted eating. So yeah, if you finished your dinner at 7.30, then you don't want to start your breakfast before 7.30. Give it at least that much. And if you're ApoE4 positive, you want to add a couple more hours to that, as I mentioned. I so, typically yeah. do 14 hours. And yeah. it's really not difficult. I finish eating at 6 and I, I eat at 8 the next yeah. morning. So it's, Absolutely. it's not that difficult. Absolutely. And Julie G, who, who wrote the, the book with us, uh, you know, her typical thing is she's, she's typically just doing a meal. She's restricting her eating typically to around 2 p.m. to 6 p.m., somewhere in there. So she's doing closer to 20 hours of fasting, which works for her. But she, you know, she checks her ketones and she keeps herself in the right range. So, you know, do whatever you like, but, you know, get a minimum of 12 hours of fasting. Really good. And 14 is fantastic. 16, fantastic. These are all excellent to give yourself enough time to get into ketosis. Also, give your time enough time for autophagy, which is actually helping to cleanse your brain and your neurons. These things are all helpful. And by the way, uh, fasting also associated with improved blood pressure profiles. So when people go on the program we developed, one of the things they notice is they don't need their antihypertensives anymore. They don't need their statin drugs anymore. They don't need their anti-diabetic drugs anymore. So these things, again, are things that are needed because we're doing the wrong thing. You start doing the right thing that you don't absolutely need those. So that's the 12 hours. And then the slash three, as you mentioned, is you want to have three hours between, a minimum of three hours between finishing your dinner. So if you, as you said, you know, 7.30, okay, uh, then fine 10.30, you know, you want to go to bed. You can go later than that, but you don't want to be finishing your food, uh, or if you finish at seven, you know, fine, what, what have you, six. If you finish at six, then great, you don't want to go to bed before nine. Uh, and so, you know, any of these things, um, you don't want to go to bed so early after you're eating. If you're eating until 10.30 at night and then you go to bed at 11, you're, you're bumped your insulin and it's going to be high while you're sleeping. And one of the things that's going to happen is you're not going to make appropriate melatonin for sleeping at night. 
uh, you're going to have more insulin resistance because you've got that still high at night. And I should add, one of the things that's come out in the last few years, I'm sure you're aware of this CGM, continuous glucose monitoring. This has turned out to be incredibly helpful. And I think all of us should do this. It is typically it's done for two weeks, as you know. Um, there are different ways you can do it. You can do it with this Freestyle Libra, or you can do it with uh, Dexcom, things like that. They simply sit on your skin for and, and sample your interstitial fluid for about two weeks typically, and they'll show you when you're peaking and when you're crashing. And what'll happen is people will say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm typically waking up at 2.30 or three in the morning, I never knew why. And guess what, my glucose was crashing down to 45 or 50 because I was having a high carbohydrate, low fat diet. So I didn't smooth out my glucose curve. And so then they can get on the right things to smooth that out. Similarly, they'll say, oh my gosh, you know, I was having what I thought was a very healthy bowl of what have you, you know, oatmeal, granola, something like that, and jumping my glucose up to 220, just giving me this incredible spike so I can avoid that now. So these things are critical because for brain function, you want neither the big spikes up nor the big troughs down. You want to keep yourself best in the you know, 70 to 85 range is the best. That's where you really want to be. I remember Dr. Perlmutter talking about how well, they get up and they have a huge glass of orange juice first thing. And yep. that, just, that just spikes it like you just have a bunch of sugar because yep. you have. Yep. So those spikes are, are really what you don't want. Exactly. And of course, they contribute to your insulin resistance and therefore to your type 1.5 Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about alcohol? Yeah, great question. Uh, and, and because, you know, so many of us would love some, some wine and, you know, it's fine to do some. If you look, if you're already significantly symptomatic, you want to stay away from anything that's going to impact that in a negative way. So you want to stay away from alcohol. If you're asymptomatic, if you're interested in prevention, as you know, alcohol also reduces stress. It also often improves vascular status. And of course, red wine's got some wonderful polyphenols. So we talk about this in the book. And there's some uh, dry red wines um, that are low in the glycemic index. And again, yep. you got to be careful. This can spike your glucose up. So yep. Again, small amounts, moderation, try a, you know, three or four ounces. Uh, you don't want to do three of those at night, but if you want to do, you know, one of those a couple of times a week, for most people, that's going to be fine. Anything that impacts your cognition, please be careful because, you know, you are affecting your neuronal network. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the, uh, the big alcohol drinks right now that is so popular, and I don't know if they are up there like they are in Southern Cal, is the um, hard kombuchas. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know, they, they say they have no sugar and they have all this protective stuff, you know, biotics and all this stuff, but you're still getting alcohol. Yeah. You're still getting alcohol, and, and again, not the end of the world. Um, th these um, these hard kombuchas better than some other things. Yeah. Uh, than you know having massive amounts of hard alcohol, but yeah. again, take it in in moderation. 
Uh, you yeah, don't, yeah. again, you don't want to get yourself drunk because obviously when you're drunk, you're basically saying my brain is not functioning as well. And of course, as you know, you can have long-term damage to your brain from alcohol. So again, fine to try these. You don't want to do too much. Right. I would like to go back to oral health for a little bit because I think um, people are just starting to realize the importance of that. And so many of us, myself included, had all the amount fillings and, you know, I was very cavity prone when I was younger. So my mouth was kind of a mess. And then that progressed into having nine root canals in one year. And so it's been a cascade of problems with my mouth. And I'm in the process of going to a biological dentist and I've got a, um, I've got one more crown I need and I'm having my root canal teeth and because I want to get that metal out and um, so let's talk what's your thoughts on that it's a great point and you know it, you can see immediately that as we're talking about cognitive decline this has to do with how our gut works it has to do with our dentition it has to do with our sinuses it has to do with our metabolism it has to do with so many things because you've got to get these things functioning appropriately. If you're not delivering blood well enough to your brain, if you're not delivering oxygenation, if you're not delivering energy in the form of ketones, these things are all critical. And it turns out, as you indicated, one of the most important of all is your oral health and something that affects so many of us. And so as you indicated, it's you've got to look for your mercury. And of course, mercury was used in fillings for years. And people said, yeah, it's probably fine. Well, in some cases, that's true. In some cases, it doesn't leak systemically. But in other cases, unfortunately, it does. And so you can have these chronically high mercury levels. And in fact, mercury by itself creates a pathology in the brain that looks virtually identical to Alzheimer's disease. It gives you the plaque, it gives you the tangles that a pathologist would read as Alzheimer's disease. Fortunately, the majority of patients with Alzheimer's, mercury is not the big player, but in some of us, it is. So important to, to keep that exposure low. It, you can be exposed both from the, uh, the, the inorganic mercury that you get from the fillings and from the organic mercury that you get from the seafood eating. And then yeah. as you indicated, periodontitis and gingivitis, these are critical. Uh, and this is, people have called it leaky gums. So in fact, yeah. if you've got, you know, when you're brushing your teeth, if you've got uh, blood in the sink, you've got some gingivitis and that is a concern, absolutely. And in fact, they, you, you mentioned the dental side and uh, toothpaste and, and uh, mouthwash, very good idea. It can improve your oral microbiome. And there are some probiotic toothpastes out there like Revitin. And you know, we're agnostic, oh, yeah. whatever works. Uh, you right. know, I, don't, I don't work for any of these companies, but whatever works to help, that's what we're interested in. I've used so, Revitin too. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. That's a good one too. That's it's a, really a good one, good it one. gives you, it's, it's a, you know, it's a probiotic. And as you know, we used to think, medical school years ago, it was taught, you know, get rid of these bacteria, get rid of these organisms. Well, it's not that simple, of course. You have a microbiome for your mouth. You have a microbiome for your gut. So it's not so much about getting rid of the, them. It's about getting rid of the bad guys and keeping the good guys. The good guys yeah. are protective. Therefore, we recommend get a simple test. It's called oral DNA. 
it will actually give you how much do you have of each of the pathogens. How much P. gingivalis, T. denticola, F. nucleatum, Prevotella intermedia, on and on. These critical pathogens that can go, unfortunately, from your mouth into your brain and can contribute to cognitive decline. If you're doing the right thing, you should be very low in those pathogens and higher in the good bacteria. But if you've got high levels of those, you know that it's time to take this very seriously. So absolutely, whether you're talking about mercury, whether you're talking about gingivitis, whether you're talking about periodontitis with these specific pathogens, these are all critical potential contributors and an area that's relatively easy to address to reduce your risk or reduce your cognitive decline. Yeah, very important. And um, I, I feel significantly better since I have had some work done and some chelation type things going on that um, it's making a big difference. So um, critical. Very important. And again, you know, you just, you don't let it go to the point that you get symptoms. You want yeah. to deal with it as early as possible. Uh, and, you know, we should add water flossing can be very yeah. helpful as well. Uh, so all of these things helpful to keep good dentition and reduce your risk for cognitive decline. Right, right. Well, you also have a chapter in the book that is on your uh, brain food pyramid that I thought yes. was interesting. You want to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And that's, that's a critical one. Uh, and, you know, back in the 1970s, the food pyramids appeared. And so we had this, and if you remember back the original food pyramid, what was at the bottom of the pyramid? The thing that we're supposed to be eating the most of was things like bread. And it turned out, unfortunately, no surprise, what has happened to our country since the 1970s? Obesity has skyrocketed. Type 2 diabetes has skyrocketed. Vascular disease has gone up because of this. And therefore, as they point out, for the first time, our average longevity, our average lifespan is actually going down instead of up. And of course, I should mention, COVID-19 has taken the same risk factors that we look at over decades with Alzheimer's, and it has compressed them down to two weeks. And so as has been pointed out by Jeffrey Bland, this is a pandemic within a pandemic. We have the pandemic of, of metabolic disease and the pandemic of Alzheimer's, and now within that, we have the pandemic of COVID-19, and we are at such risk because we have a poor metabolic state. In both Alzheimer's and COVID-19, by the way, we have the activation of the innate immune system, but not a good enough adaptive immune system. Normally, the innate hands it off to the adaptive, the adaptive takes care of the problem, and then goes back and turns off the innate system. But in both Alzheimer's and in poor outcomes from COVID-19, when people have so-called cytokine storm, you don't get that critical handoff working. The adaptive system is not able to clear, and so therefore you have the activation of the innate system, which is just staying on. And so in the case of COVID, you can die from cytokine storm. In the case of Alzheimer's, you just continue to make that amyloid. So these things are critical for giving yourself the, you know, these, these things are critical for uh, for optimizing, optimizing your immune systems and giving yourself best outcomes. 
Well, this book is so comprehensive and we appreciate you so much for all your research. And, you know, it's a book that anybody can follow. You, you guide us where to go get tests and, you know, what may be beneficial for you to eat. Uh, you certainly have outlined a way for us to be preventative. Absolutely. And, and, reversal, and, and reverse cognitive decline uh, if, if and when it comes and, and do it as early as possible. Uh, and so the whole idea of this book was to provide details and to make it practical and to make it useful for everybody so that all together we can reduce the global burden of dementia. That's the way things are headed. You started by talking about the scourges, things like leprosy and uh, polio, which we don't worry about anymore. We will get to a point where Alzheimer's is the same. It's, it will not be a disease that's common. It will not be one that's on our minds. And as I mentioned at the end of the book, fixing cognitive decline will be as common as straightening teeth. It's wow. this is something that you know, addressing the right things we absolutely can do. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. And thank you to our listeners. The book, The End of Alzheimer's Program is out. You can find it on Amazon and other places. I'll put a link to Amazon on my show page and I highly recommend it. I think it should be in every household. Because so much, we, there's an onslaught of environmental toxins that we have to deal with every day. And there's no getting around that. But there are things that we can do to mitigate that damage. And uh, it sounds like you're saying the time is now. Let's not, not wait until you can't remember how to dress yourself. Absolutely. And of course, you know, as has been pointed out, uh, Medicare will be bankrupt in about the next 15 years if we don't do something about Alzheimer's disease. This is a huge and growing problem. And it's really a problem of just too little information. And now that we know more, we realize that there's a tremendous amount we can do about it. So thanks so much, Carol, for talking with me. Oh, thank you again. And uh, to our listeners, get the book. It's fantastic.